The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And today we are so fortunate to have with us the assistant professor from Nova Southeastern University in family and marriage counseling and so much more, Dr. Pei Fan Lee. Pei Fan, welcome. Thank you so much for your invitation. Um, it's my honor to be here. Well, why don't you introduce yourself properly because I probably messed it up. And I know you do a lot of other things too. Um, my name is Pei Fan and I am originally from Taiwan. Uh, pretty much uh, grow up and receive my college education in Taiwan. Then I decide to come to United States to pursue my uh, master and doctor degree in marriage and family therapy. So right now I'm working as a full-time faculty at Nova Southeastern University Department of Family Therapy program. Yes, so I have been uh, moved around in the United States because when I did my master, I was in Oregon. Uh, then I went back to Taiwan uh, to practice for another three years, then came back to Georgia uh, to do my doctorate degree for six years. Then I moved to Connecticut for another one year, uh, also teaching there uh, before I moved down to Florida. So I kind of moved around in the United States and experienced different kind of culture, working with different people. Yeah. You don't look old enough to have done all those things. Oh, well, I, I am old enough, yeah. But I, well, okay, I, I really appreciate my aging gene. You know, I don't look as my real, like, a bio, uh, bio, bio, biological age, I guess, yeah. Now, do you consider, do you have a favorite subspecialty of all the things you do? Okay, I think there are several. Uh, currently, I'm uh, working uh, for a grant project. Actually, I, I, have a, I did a grant project in 2017. So we provide a solution-focused oriented uh, group therapy for those parents, they have a children uh, of autism. And I have learned a lot from uh, that process because it's an international project. We collaborated with uh, two Taiwanese scholars there. Uh, you know, it's not a perfect project, but we, we have learned a lot how to do collaboration internationally, how to engage, you know, the parents there uh, to attend the group uh, therapy. Uh, so, I just kind of modify the project design a little bit, and then we receive another grant. We're gonna do, we're gonna replicate the same study with the parents uh, in Western in the local community clinic in the coming fall. Yeah, so that's one uh, special area that I'm currently doing right now. Uh, the other one is I'm also interested in explore, uh, exploring like the influence of acculturation on immigrants. Uh, like uh, currently, I'm working with my one of my students who is from uh, Cuba, originally, and uh, he wants to do his dissertation study about how Cuban family, uh, as they come to United States, what's their acculturation process look like, what type of uh, cultural strategy the whole family adopt to adjust to the United States here. So that's another track of. Uh, research that I'm currently working with my student. 
uh, also I have a third try. Usually, I, I'm just curious, you know, how because as an international scholar, I am always curious how uh, MFT theory that I have learned in United in United States have been applied in a different culture. So another course that I have uh, teaching in my program is we call international perspective of family and counseling. And every other two years, uh, we also have that collaboration between our program and Beijing Normal University. We will uh, visit um, some city in China and engage some, I and my student, you know, we will went to China and visit their program and participate their international forum of MFT conference every other years and engage some cultural trip there. Now, acculturation, you're defining that as an immigrant comes over, say, to the United States, for example. Mm -hmm. And take us through the acculturation process. Acculturation happens when two groups of people, they meet, and how they are learning from each other in terms of the other side's cultural value, their cultural attitude, even their cultural behavior. So for example, for those international students, or for those immigrants, or for those sojourners, or for those business people, they often travel around the world. So when they'll carry on, when they'll carry on their own heritage, cultural value, like, you know, I'm carrying on my Taiwanese, Chinese culture value, you know, my behavior. And when I come to United States, how I engage myself into the dominant discourse here. So for example, when I came in here, I noticed, you know, uh, you stand up and then you approach me, you hug me. But in Taiwanese culture, we don't usually do that when we greet each other. We would stand up, we would uh, shake, you know, we would hand our hand in, in the front and then shake each other's. So it's, it's a different way of greeting. So for me as a foreigner, how I modify my behavior, my value, my perception of your way of greeting and adjust in that situation. So I think acculturation is kind of take both sides, both group of people, their effort to get to know each other and to find a middle way to meet each other. What do you think is the biggest um, lack of understanding or the biggest misconception that a layperson like me might have about acculturation and immigration from your psychological perspective. If I go back to early on the definition I give about acculturation, I'm thinking I think acculturation take both sides effort. Uh, but the interesting thing is I think most of the time people or the dominant discourse here in one country, they usually expect the immigrant or those sojourner to adjust more rather than themselves. So I feel like that's maybe where is the conflict or maybe there's where is the disagreement or maybe that's where the misunderstanding arise. Um, if, I'm just imagine if the dominant discourse here or the dominant culture here in the United States, they are willing to take a more learning stance, try to understand where, what is really going on with those people, why they choose to come to the United States, why they don't choose to go to another country. 
you know, and learn and dial, engage their dialogue with them, I guess they might open, you know, the, the more opportunity for each side to get, to get to know each other's more rather than shutting down too quickly, you know, before to engage them. Now, one of the groups that you're engaging with are the parents of children with autism. Yes. What patterns might you be able to comment on at this point? Mm -hmm. in your knowledge? I, well, based, based on my interaction with those Taiwanese parents, I think like a lot of research has demonstrated, uh, when you notice how the parents, how the spouse, they manage, you know, their role in relation to the ra railing their kids. You, you see, usually the mother is still the main caretaker role. You know, they give transportation to take the kids to here and there to receive the training, to get the service that needs, uh, the, the kids needs. And the father is the main uh, breadwinner. So, uh, you know, when you notice that, uh, sometimes I feel like it, it, how, how we can better uh, kind of challenge that pattern a little bit. So in a way, the mother won't feel that much burden throughout that parenting process. And then it's complicated by the fact that there's, uh, I believe, a higher rate of divorce, at least in America, mm -hmm. um, among the uh, special needs parents. And uh, in my book, I call the, uh, the single mothers the uh, uh, pit bulls with an angel's mentality, because mm -hmm. as you said, they have to fight with the doctor yep. and the system and the insurance and the teachers. And they also have to bring home the bread in many instances, yeah, too. Yeah, you are right. It's, it's kind you of are tough. right. What are the biggest differences you see between the Taiwanese population in this regard versus mm -hmm. what you see here in America? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think the research has demonstrated some, some similarity and some differences. The similarity including, uh, of course, raising a, a case with the special need. Usually, that will increase their marital distress and lower their marital uh, quality. And sometimes both parents, they also feel like, um, they also uh, experience some like uh, psychological well-being issue, like experience anxiety or depression. Uh, there are some research that specifically is done in, in China or in Taiwan. They notice the mother would, you, would, would even worry more about their kids' uh, future. I think that tie back to, especially for the couple, if they play more rigid, like a gender role. You know, so, so lots of time, because the mother is usually the one who uh, provide the main caretaker, who notice that what kind of challenge, or anticipate what kind of challenge that her kids might, might gonna experience in the future. So it provokes more like a worry and anxiety for the mother rather than the father. Uh, I think there was one study also talk about uh, in China, in some, uh, in some city, uh, they noticed that the kids, they experience more discrimination from the majority of people when they don't have enough knowledge about what really happened to their special case. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. But for the similarity, I feel like this is just my uh, clinical observational perspective. I think for the most part, I feel like those family, like other normal family in my perspective, because I see most parents, they are very willing to sacrifice themselves to find every resources they can uh, find to support their kids 
to make their case dry, you know, in, in the future. What got you interested in therapy? Wow, that's, you just remind me, you just throw me back to my memory, you know, back to, back to my, uh, my, my day of being interviewed in my doctoral program, like why you choose family therapy. Uh, because when I was a guidance teacher working in Taiwan, you know, when I'm working with those adolescents, uh, usually you notice when you work with those kids, you cannot not talk with their parents because lots of their uh, behavior issue or uh, psychological issue they mention about is always related to their family member, either tie back to how the parents treat them, how they perceive parents treat them, or how was their relationship with other siblings. So lots of time I need to, you know, with the kids, I would talk with the kids, hey, would that be okay if I invite your parents come to the school and that's a conversation about? Or would that be okay if I call your parents, try to really understand what's really going on in your family? Because when you hear kids' story, that's one side of the story, but you really want to hear another side of the story too, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the therapist self? Mm. The role of the therapist self in regards to? And your protocols and, you know, how you go about things. How, I mean, how I do therapy? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, uh, well, pretty much I follow the, you know, what's the ethic, you know, what's the ethical protocol look like, you know. Uh, I think the most important thing for me is how you, uh, build the therapeutic relationship with your client. Uh, so the first few sessions, I will really try to get to know my client, where they are coming from, uh, what's their expectation about uh, working with me. Uh, I will also be very clear about uh, the contract, you know, what's my expectation throughout the therapeutic process. Uh, and I encourage them to ask me any question, you know, so through that process, through that inquiring process that they also have a chance to get to know me. Uh, yeah, so I think for the first few sessions, um, they are building a, a good relationship, you know, how we can work with each other, how, uh, you know, they feel like I'm a trustworthy person, you know, they, uh, they can rely on to throughout that, the, uh, the changing process, yeah. Um. What have you seen in your students? What, have, what do you think of today's students, your students? In um, general? In, in terms of those students nowadays uh, changing, and in what ways might you think they are changing? Well, I think uh, I really need to clarify a little bit because I think Nova Southeastern University is a very uh, special learning context because we have a lot of um, traditional students. Uh, we have a lot of students, they already work uh, in the field and some of them are licensed therapists already. And then they come back, they decide to pursue their degree. And of course we have some, they are straightforward students, they just graduated from college, you know, still very young, learn how to do therapy uh, professionally, ethically, uh, also maturely in my perspective. So we, we do have a diversity among our students. So I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, um, you know, say in a very stereotypical way, you sure. know, to categorize one, one way than the other. Uh, but I do think uh, teaching nowadays with the current generation is, in my perspective, I feel like it's much more challenged compared to I, when I was a student. Uh, at UGA. Uh, UGA is a more like a research institute, 
And I don't know, I feel like there is, there is a more like hierarchy set up between the faculty and the student. Uh, for student, I feel like you need to be an independent learner, pretty much. Like the, the faculty will give you something and then you, you go back, find the resources, find the information. And, and to most extent, you need to learn by yourself. But I feel here, uh, maybe our students, they are just get too busy sometimes, you know, so I feel like they rely on the instructor a little bit, a little bit more rather than rely on themselves. So I don't know, I guess, you know, like what I said earlier, the context is, is different. So I know for, uh, for our students, their, their resources, I, what I mean is their time resources are very limited. So they spend their energy in their work, in their family, uh, so it kind of makes sense sometimes to me, you know, I feel like as an instructor, I not only need to give them hand, or sometimes I need to provide more information, you know, and motivate them more in order for them to feel more uh, excited or interested in learning process. So you need to inspire them. Yes, I feel like, yeah. I feel like. So sometimes, you know, it's not when I prepare my teaching material, uh, I not only prepare the content, I need to think about how I deliver the content, how I can make it more fun, more interesting, you know, in a way, yeah. Are you writing any books? Not book at this point. Um, I'm mainly writing a manuscript uh, for publication, yeah. What is the manuscript on? Uh, well, you know, the one manuscript I, I'm, uh, I'm working on is that we, I'm working with a, to, uh, to another international student about the uh, Cuban, uh, immigrant, uh, Cuban immigrant adolescents, how they'll perceive discrimination uh, linked to their feeling of depression and that further can impact on their education attainment. Um, but also we examine how their family cohesion can possibly moderate or buffer that negative impact of discrimination. That's one manuscript we are writing on right now. And so one of the students also doing more in-depth uh, literature review about uh, what, what research that has been done with the Cuban immigrant family. Yes. Well, you know, there's uh, the uh, History Miami Museum. Mm -hmm. um, where they, they took some of, uh, I, I had some, a piece of the wall of the old Fifth Street gym from Miami Beach. That was where Muhammad Ali trained and everything. And it has since been demolished. But in the history of Miami Museum, they had a lot of the Cuban history, which I was ignorant of till I went down there, really. You know, going back to the, the Peter Pan and all, and all the, the different stages of migration they've had. And there's all different generations, uh, and they they disagree with one another. For instance, the youngest uh, Cuban American generation will disagree with the grandfather. Yeah, yeah, example, yeah, yeah. They create another complex, you know. But, but they do have uh, very, generally speaking, of course, uh, very strong family ties, mm -hmm. multi generational, yeah. which is very very helpful. Yeah. And, we see the opposite in some of our underserved uh, areas here in the United States. Uh, you know, for instance, at the the uh, Reitman Boys and Girls Club on Broward Boulevard, which is in zip code 33311, which is one of the worst zip codes in the world, um, the, the young people there, uh, mainly African-American, uh, 
they in this poor neighborhood, they don't really have family. They don't. If you ask them to raise their hand, if they have two parents, only nobody raises their hand. If you ask, if you have one parent, only about half of them do. The foster homes are being brought up by grandparents and things like that. Whereas in many of the Hispanic uh, family trees, which are very diverse themselves, it's very different, in a, as you know, between a, a Cuban family, say, and a Dominican family and a Venezuelan family. And there can be big differences. But they do have the family support that many other ethnic groups do not. Yeah. And that's extremely uh, helpful. Yeah. And that goes back to when the, you know, Ellis Island, when the immigrants first came over to New York, you know, they had everybody lived in, you know, one building. You know, you had aunts, uncles, cousins, and everything. And now, it's different. Yeah. I mean, we do, while we are analysis the data, we do find the family cohesion is a significant protector uh, for those kids, you know, uh, to, to buffer that negative impact of discrimination on their education attainment. We, we do find that. So the data also prove our theory about that. Yeah, family co cohesion is really a very uh, unique uh, cultural characteristic associated with the Cuban family, associated with the Hispanic family. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned like a whole family, they live in the same building. Um, you know, it's still practiced in Taiwan too. Yeah, like I have, I have some friend, female friend, when they got married, they moved into uh, the husband's family of origin. And here's how they, they situate the, the family building, okay? So the first floor is the living room and the kitchen on the back. The second floor is for the parents, the grandparents. The third floor is for her and for her husband and for their one one uh, one kid, and then the fourth floor fourth uh, fourth floor is for her husband's brother and his wife. Yeah, so they all live together. You know, they all need to uh, learn how to communicate or, or juggle with each other. You know, for example, who gonna cook? You know, for lunch, for dinner, who is responsible for which days? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. The families of uh, someone with autism in Taiwan versus the families of someone with autism in America, how do they families differ in their approach and what their patterns? What are they the same? I feel like uh, what I see is uh, like for those Taiwanese parents, mm, at least for those parents that I have, I luckily have interaction with, I feel like they all work really, really hard. Because when they just notice, or when they have their kids get that first diagnosis, you know, well, first they might feel surprised, you know, what really, going, what, what really happened to my kids. But throughout that making sense of process, they gradually accept that kind of label. But then they start, I feel like they don't just give up there. They start to figure out what are those outside resources, you know, their kids can have in order the kids can uh, be more independent, independent function, functioning uh, in the school or in, in their daily life. And during that group therapy process, I noticed each parent, they are so willing to share what kind of strategy they have used, you know, 
this is the successful strategy I noticed, you know, I can help out my kids to do this and that, you know, you might want to try that out. So I don't know, I imagine the parents here is doing pretty much the same thing like your book. I mean, you, you write those books because you want to provide those practical guidelines for those parents or for even educators or for us to understand how we can really approach those kids. Yeah, so in that sense, I don't feel like they are that different. Right. Yeah, yeah. Same thing in the world goes around. Do you feel that does Nova Southeastern have a lot of resources for these families and for the autistic uh, individuals? I, I mean, at BTI, we do provide the family therapy clinic. Uh, we do provide family therapy, you know, for those for those uh, family too. How can our different brains audience learn more about you? Me, myself. Yes. Well, they've just seen you here, and they're yeah. very smart. You've got a lot of good stuff. You're helping a lot of people. Um, how do they contact you? Where do they read more about you? Well, I think they can go to our uh, NSU uh, College of Art, Humanity, and Social Science website. Uh, we have a faculty profile. I think they can read more about uh, who I am and in terms of my research interests, in terms of my life experience there. Um, yes, and there is an email uh, contact. If they are willing to uh, get to know me more, uh, they can click that email address and email me, and then we will continue that conversation. Are there any topics we have not covered today that you would like to cover? Well, I wish I can share with you more about my, uh, my future research study. Uh, maybe after you know we finish implement that uh, that research uh, in in Western, and maybe you know after my analysis or preliminary analysis, maybe I can send you because uh, we I think uh, after we got the preliminary analysis, we are gonna find uh, a chance to present those research findings at different conferences. So maybe at that time I can send you uh, here's the our research finding, here's my observation, and then we can you know I can. Maybe I have more insight, you know, uh, in regards to some of your question. What's the difference between Taiwanese uh, family and American family in terms of how they railing their special kid? Well, we'll be delighted to have you back if we're lucky enough if you come back to see us. Okay, I would love to. Okay, sounds good. Well, Doctor Payfan Lee, it's been such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for coming in here today and being one of this episode of Exploring Different Brains. We learned so much, so thank you very, very much, and we hope to have you back soon. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for inviting me and to have a fuller dialogue with you. I really appreciate you giving me this chance, and I hope to talk with you more in regard to my research finding in the future. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.